So how do we promote and encourage a joy-filled generosity? To answer that question this morning, we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Did I already ask you to turn there yet? I don't think I did. Okay. Turn to 2 Corinthians 8 real quick as we seek to answer this question. How do we encourage a joy-filled, and as I described it last Sunday, it's like a, a can of soda pop that's dropped on the ground and you pop it open. That's the kind of generosity that characterized giving in an area called Macedonia, which according to verse 2 and 3 was characterized by severe trial and extreme poverty welling up from them is a rich and abundant generosity. A generosity that caused them to give more than they could afford, a statement that has haunted me all week. Seeking for a definition that won't do such damage to the text that I escape the ramifications of it. To try to put it into the context where I live without stripping it of any compulsion or meaning that might result. They gave more than they could afford to give. That's the group of people that Paul now holds up as a comparison. So, my first attempt this morning is to encourage you to say that people that claim to have a relationship with Christ by grace through faith are by and far away the most generous demographic in the country that you and I live in. But I want to encourage you to do so, as Paul says in Colossians, more and more. Okay, to say, all right, you're doing fine, but there's a lot of room for improvement. I don't want to create in us a, a sense of laxness in regards to giving. I don't want us to walk out saying, oh, we're, we're, you know, I'm going to challenge the next person that confronts me about giving. Okay, keep it to yourself. Live the life. Live the life. Let them see. An overwhelming, joy-filled generosity. How does Paul promote it? He does it by encouragement, verse 7. Notice what he says. Just as you excel in everything, and then he lists various ways that the church in Corinth is growing and, and, and being encouraged. He says, see that you excel also in this grace of giving. That's the encouragement. You're doing good. Keep it going. Look at verse 8. He says, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love in the context of generosity by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Okay, so is there a biblical justification for using comparison as a means of promoting growth in an area of spiritual life? Okay, as parents, we avoid comparison like the plague, don't we? Well, we sort of do. Okay. Child to child, right? Don't, don't, do, don't compare the kids to each other. Don't do that. And I total agreement with you. I'm going to tell you something, though. Every parent that has a child that's committed to athletics uses comparison as a superior motivation. So-and-so's in town, coming to a breakfast. So-and-so's playing at such and such. You know what we do? We take them there, and it's good to let them see by comparison that they, while they're good at what they do, they're not there yet. And the comparison to a standard that is excellent or superior in a certain area promotes a desire to do more and more. That's exactly how Paul is using the example of the Macedonian church, which is experiencing persecution and poverty. He draws them in as an example for the church in Corinth. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your generosity by comparing with the earnestness of others. Look at the church in Macedonia. 
out of a severe trial. It is welling up in rich generosity. And the question comes to mind, why? Why is that happening so much in the area of Macedonia? So I want to work through six more observations from this text. I think we did five last week, six more this morning that are in your notes. How do we promote generosity, a joy-filled, overflowing, abundant giving that will cause biblical Christians to stand out in their community to be marked by a generosity that people have to say, why? Why are they like that? Why are they so generous? Why are they so committed? Number one on your sheet this morning is this. I think we can encourage joyful generosity because it is a divinely enabled activity. Okay, it is a divinely enabled activity. I want you to notice, and I, I, last week I told you it was in the text three times. I was wrong. It's actually in the text four times. And by the way, I told you that I hate fruit, and I felt bad about that on the way home from church. I was like, do I hate? Hate's a really strong word. Okay, I love it less than all other food. Okay. <laughs> And I'll tell you that I wish I loved fruit, okay? It's not like I despise it. I walk through the fruit aisle, and I'm, it's not like i got to run out of the fruit aisle. I, I look at it and think, I wish I loved you. But uh, so, so, I, so I, that was just weird. After I was going home, I was like, that was very strong and a bit of a distortion because I do eat bananas. Okay. Um, look at the word grace in verse 1 first, okay? He says, we want you to know about the grace of God. And the grace of God, the word grace and generosity can be synonymous, okay? We want you to know about the generosity that God has given to the churches in Macedonia. It is a, a, a gift of generosity. It's a, it's a God-enabled ability to see needs, and they are so in touch with the work of Christ and the grace of Christ that they are just overflowing. Go down then to verse 6. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace, this act of generosity on your part. The, and, and the idea of it being a grace is that it's spirit-inspired and enabled. Go down to the end of verse 7. See that you also excel in this generosity of giving. Okay, so that every time you see the word giving, it's tied to a concept of generosity. And then here's the one I found this morning. And I saw this before, but verse 9, this is so rich. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. What is the grace of our Lord Jesus? His incredible generosity. So four times in this text, you find a word used that could be translated as generosity or as an abundant enablement to do what God is calling us to do in terms of our relationship with stuff. If you don't understand the grace of God, that your salvation is fully purchased by what Christ has done, you will not be generous. That's what the statistics in this country show. And I think they, it is exactly what the Bible is teaching. Therefore, I should not have a condemning and critical attitude towards people who talk about giving and don't do it. Because the only reason I do it, if I am practicing it, is either to buy a place in heaven, which is a false motive, or I am doing it simply out of gratitude to God for the abundance that he has brought into my life. It is a response to his prior move in your direction. So don't 
get on a high horse tomorrow and say, I have statistics that you'll never hear on you know, TV or radio, okay? I'm not giving to it to you for that reason. I'm saying it to you because I want you to understand why. Why should Christians be the most generous? Because it's motivated by God's grace. He not only blesses us abundantly, but he richly enables us to be shaking can of soda, bursting forth generous because we are so incredibly grateful to God. So the first thought this morning is, this grace of giving, abundant generosity, should be welling up in the context of the chapel because it is enabled by the grace of God that is given and that the, the grace of God also that empowers. If giving for you is an obligation and a duty that is not springing forth from a heart of gratitude, okay, if giving isn't coming from the source of gratitude, Here's what will happen. The obligation will strangle your spiritual life. You'll give, but you will resent the gift. Because it's not, I have the privilege of doing this. I have to do it. May God deliver us by his grace from the feeling of obligation. And may he move us to a deep sense of gratitude that says we ought to do this, but not as duty, not because my wife's going to get mad if I don't bring home the flowers on this and that day, but because we love, okay? Because we love. Second thought that emerges in verses six and seven, generosity, joyful generosity in the context of church life is the God-ordained means that enables the church to do its God-given work, Okay, so joyful generosity in a numerous texts in the New Testament is the means that God uses to promote His work through the local church. A few weeks ago, about a month ago, we talked about God's passion and love for the local church. New Testament is written by and large to local churches. God loves the church, wants to see the church grow, wants to see the church accomplish her God-given mission. And giving is the God-ordained means. I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. You just have to go back a couple of pages in most of our Bibles. 1 Corinthians 16. And I want you to see how giving to meet the needs of others was a corporate church response. Okay? Many of us know what it is to give individually to support needs. But what I want to argue for you this morning is most of the giving in the New Testament, not all, but most of the generous giving in the New Testament is done corporately under the umbrella of the local church ministry because the local church is the means that God wants to use to impact the world. Okay, and so he's gifted the church so that it may effectively do that. And he wants our giving to be done, I believe, based on numerous texts in Scripture, primarily through the context of a local church. 1 Corinthians 16.1 Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatians churches to do. On the first day of every week, that is the day when the church gathers, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. So what's the indication there? There's a proportionate response that's there, and this proportionate giving is saved up so that he says in verse, end of verse 1, when I come, no collection will be half to made. Then when I arrive, I will give you letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. What is it? It's a story about corporate giving to a church that was experiencing a famine in Jerusalem. That church in Corinth was tasked by God to respond to that need that was present in Jerusalem. So together, 
the church collected funds and sent them to fulfill their God-given task and purpose. One other passage. Turn back a little bit further to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. This is a passage that never stuck out to me before in light of this topic of giving corporately as a church body. Romans chapter 15. And begin reading with me in verse 25. Romans 15, verse 25. Okay, what what I want you to focus on is the truth that the the church local is bearing primary responsibility for meeting needs that they became aware of. Verse 25, here's what it says. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there, local church body in Jerusalem. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased... And here's the literal translation. They thought it good. They thought it good to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it. Now, I want you to notice, they weren't compelled. They weren't commanded. They found it a joy to take from their resources and to respond to the needs of those that were in Jerusalem. For, all right, they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. That's the phrase that stuck out to me. There is a need in a body of Christ. And Paul's take on it is, they were pleased to respond to it. But more than that, they owe it to them by virtue of their relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have, based on this text, an obligation to sense and to meet needs in the context of local churches. And the only way that that can happen is when giving is done in the context of a local church, needs can be identified in the context of biblical leadership and spiritual gifts, etc., etc., and the needs are met for the glory of God. So to me, when I, read, when I read this, the thing that just stuck out is they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. And you say, why? Well, notice, notice in the middle of verse 27 what it says. For if the Gentiles have shared, and that is the people in Macedonia and Achaia, if they have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share their material blessings. Do you get the connection? The gospel of grace that had come through the Jewish people was the cause of joyful generosity on the part of the churches in Achaia and Macedonia. They understood that Christ, the glorious riches of the gospel, had come to them through the Jewish people. And they had an ought, a sense that we owe it to them. They have a need. We ought to do something about that. I had that happen to me this week. Someone two weeks ago shared a need in the context of a prayer study that I'm involved in. Someone in that group called me a couple weeks later and said, we should do something about that. You know what he was saying? We have a responsibility. We have an obligation. It wasn't, we're going to be in big trouble if we don't. It was, you know what, we... We owe it. And it came out in the context of a... And then another brother that shared that need with said, I'll I'll be sure that that gets taken care of. Where does that come from? When the grace of God is understood, when your salvation is understood, when your eternal destiny is secure in Christ, and you know it, and you focus on that, and you rejoice in that, you cannot be a miser. You can't. There's a need, you do your best as a body of Christ to meet that need. 
the context for that giving, the God-ordained means that enables the local church to do its work is joyful generosity. Hence, we should promote it. Number three, verse four. He says, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Then drop down to verse eight. I am not commanding you. Okay, now, two thoughts that coalesce with, with the meaning here. The giving that was taking place in Macedonia and the giving that was to be present in the church in Corinth was the giving that was, in fact, voluntary. And so Paul can say, entirely on their own. They, someone didn't tell them, hey, you ought to do something about that. They heard about the need and they sensed that they as a church should respond to that need. Paul says they did it entirely on their own in Macedonia. He then comes to the church in Corinth and, and says, here's a model for joy-filled generosity. Be like them. So the command is to imitate good behavior. But the part of giving is not a, in the New Testament, it's not a demand. It's not a compulsion. It's something that should flow spontaneously out of hearts that have come to understand the riches of God's grace in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, let me make this observation about giving. I think I can say that giving is mandatory, okay, in both the Old Testament and New Testament. Okay, I think I could say that it is mandatory, that it is expected that Christians will generously share from the resources that they acquire. That's that's an expectation, and I think it is something. Certainly in the Old Testament, it's mandatory. If you go to Micah chapter 3, here's what God says to the nation of Israel. When you withhold your tithes, you are stealing from me. Now, let me flip to the New Testament. You won't find anything that strong in the New Testament. Okay, so is it appropriate to say that generous, joyful giving is expected of Christians in the New Testament era? I think the overwhelming evidence of Scripture, based on Paul's call to the churches to support the work that God is doing, makes it abundantly clear that that is to be part of church life. It's part of our experience and relationship with each other. But it is, in fact, voluntary. It's not mandatory like it was in the Old Testament. The purpose of Christian generosity is to enable the church to more effectively fulfill her mission. There is no approach to fulfill that mission in the New Testament, other than this, and I please want you to understand this. There is no approach in the New Testament for fulfilling the needs of the church financially than the free will offering of God's people. Study it for yourself. You will not find any other approach to supporting the work of God in the New Testament other than free will giving. In the Old Testament, tithe was obligatory because it was under a theocracy, a national relationship with the temple and tabernacle. In the New Testament, it's all grace. It's all free will giving. I was talking with a friend about this this week, just banging this thought around with another pastor. He said, don't you think that if God is moving from an obligatory 10% in the Old Testament, from a system that required great activity on the part of individuals involved, to a position of grace, freeness, abundance, wouldn't you think that the, the amount of giving would be expected to increase, not decrease. Okay, and I, I think the argument is sound. If we live in grace and we've experienced the riches of Christ, and that's where Paul's going to go at the end of this text. 
Look at what you have in Christ. What that should produce in the heart of every individual is a, a joy-filled, not obligatory, I've got to pay my taxes. I hate paying my taxes. Okay, I resent what I pay in taxes for my house. Okay, I pay it, but it's not joyful and generous. It's to the penny with resentment. Okay, that's how I pay my taxes. I'm grateful for the country I live in too. But the tithe was obligatory. The gifts in the New Testament are grace gifts. They're free will. That's why we as a church don't do uh, raffles. Okay? We don't try to get you to give more by giving you a promise of maybe you're going to get something back. That's manipulation. And prevalent in churches. We don't do dinners to raise funds for God's work. Why? We believe God's people should sponsor God. It's the only model in the New Testament. I get nervous about putting CDs back there. Okay, I get nervous about that stuff. Okay, I don't want... God wants his work supported through the free will, generous offerings of people who have been redeemed by his grace and can't help but respond to the generous riches that they have received from God. And it will change your life. Now, go to verses 6 and 7. I'll just try to move along a little more quickly. Generous, joyful giving, I believe, is a learned behavior. Okay, I believe it is a learned behavior. I believe that we should teach on giving. I believe I have erred, probably sinned, in not speaking about this topic. That's why, it's why earlier I asked you, forgive me for not addressing this topic. For being nervous about the correlations and I grew up in a, a business setting and a, people always asking for money from my dad and I, I grew to a place where I kind of, I got a little put off by it. Okay, but it's not an excuse for ignoring what God's word says. Look at verses 6 and 7 and see if Paul isn't encouraging Titus to teach the Corinthians to finish the work of joyful, generous giving. He says, so we urged Titus since he had earlier made a beginning. That's 1 Corinthians 16.1. To bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But as you excel in everything, go to the end of the verse. See that you excel in this grace of giving. The clear implication is that Titus has been sent back to the church to teach them to fulfill their God-given responsibility to the church abroad. I mean, that is the clear and overwhelming emphasis of this text. I think it's fascinating that when you go into the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, Paul says to Timothy, tell those who are rich not to trust in uncertain riches, but to be generous. Okay, so what does that tell you? It tells you that leaders are to teach on giving and that you and I, when we hear teaching about giving, have a choice that we need to make. Will I receive the biblical principles that are established in relationship to giving and order my life around them? Okay, or will I believe the lie that material possessions are the source of happiness that will promote a miserliness, a stinginess in the, in the context of Christian giving? It is a learned behavior that is motivated by a choice to live in obedience to the general principles that God's word establishes. And then that general principle about joyful generosity is motivated and springs forth from an understanding of the grace of God that comes to us in Christ, as we so beautifully sung this morning. That's why Christians should be far and away. I, you should, I was surprised by these statistics that they were so far out, especially the national comparisons. And I believe that a part of the reason that the American, America as a nation on the basis of per capita percentage of its gross domestic product 
gives away more than an end of the nation is because there is a Christian foundation that underlays a lot, not all, but a lot of what we are about as a nation. So it is a learned behavior that I dislike talking about, but it is crucial that I do. Any parent sitting in this room knows that joyful generosity is learned. Your kids don't open up their Christmas gifts. Watch them in a couple weeks. They don't open up their Christmas gift thinking, I wonder who I can share this with. Okay? My, my mother-in-law gives me huge bags of black licorice jelly beans, the jelly bean brand too. Okay? When I get that from her, I'm not thinking, I really should bless Becca with these because she likes it as much as I do. I'm thinking, where can I hide this? So she doesn't know. And how do I keep that from my mother-in-law so that she continues to bless me with more, okay? Generosity, you have to learn it. You know how you learn it? Sit at the feet of Christ. Sit at the feet of the one who was rich yet became poor so that you by his poverty might be rich. I ask you, sit at the foot of the cross with your checkbook when you think of what you're going to give and ask yourself this question, can I tip God? You ever do this with waitresses? Do you give enough just so you don't want them to be mad when you walk out? I do. <laughs> I mean, sometimes their service is really good and you bless them. But sometimes it's like, how much do I have to put out so I don't get chased into the parking lot and made a fool of in front of all these people? It's, God doesn't want us to give like that. And I challenged you last week with a question that I think maybe we should be asking. Not how much should I give, how much should I keep? How much should I keep? What is joyful generosity going to look like in your life and in my life? And I don't have a specific answer to that question because we can't do it with the calculator. Next thought, verse 8. Generous, joyful giving is proof of love. Paul ties this in in verse 8 so clearly. He says, I am not commanding you. I'm not coming down and saying, you must give this much. What, what is he doing? He says, I am testing you, the sincerity of your claim to love, by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Now folks, let that sink in. Paul's saying, your generosity is the test of your love. Do you want to know if you are a loving person? Ask yourself the very simple acid test question from this text. Am I generous? Why don't you go to your wife? Why don't you go to your husband? And say to them, just honest question. Can, our, can we say that our giving to the work of God is characterized by a joy-filled generosity? Or do we do just enough? It is the proof of Christian love. And look, here's what encouraged me. As I went through the statistics, looking this stuff up, what encouraged my heart was, when you go do research like this, I typed into my computer, who, who is the most generous demographic in America? I wanted the results that I saw. And I, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't surprised. The only thing that surprises me is how little it takes to be distinguished from the world around us and how quickly we can feel that we're okay because we do more than them. That's the part that scares me. 
that it takes so little to be exemplary. Watched a movie uh, two weeks ago, and I, I don't recommend movies in church, but I'm, I'm about to do that. Watched a movie called The Blind Side. Story of Sean and Leigh Ann uh, Toey, I think is how you say their last name. Upscale family who opened their home to a boy that was virtually homeless, an inner city child. His name is Michael Orr. I think I'm saying, Dan, am I saying that right? Michael Orr? Okay. Who today is an NFL rookie for the Baltimore Ravens. People said, how'd you like the movie? I said, I don't know. I mean, I love the movie. I love the story. It's encouraging. But my thought was more, what are the ramifications You'll watch something like that. What are the ramifications for my life of that example of people who brought an older, huge child into their house while having a son and daughter of their own in a very upscale, wealthy neighborhood? Risk. And it comes out as you watch the movie. It's all the neighbors like, oh, 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 oh. You know how we, we qualify ourselves out of obedience all the time by fear. And this movie will, it'll just, it'll roll you right over. And if you just get into the story and the drama, you just go out saying it's a nice movie. But when you watch it, it's powerful. The story of these people's lives is, is so compelling. Sandra Bullock is the lady that plays the role of the mom, uh, Annie Lay, in this story. She said this, in preparing for the movie, she found her own preconceived notions about Christians challenged. I quote, one of my biggest issues has always been people who use their religion as a banner and don't do the right things. Yet still go, I'm a good Christian, I go to church, and this is the way you should live your life. And I'm like, you know, and you can hear her saying this, do not give me a lecture about how to live my life. When you go to church every weekend, but I know you're sneaking around on your wife. And I told Leanne, these are her words, in a live interview, one of my largest concerns in getting involved in this project was the whole banner-waving thing because it scares me, and it should. But she was so open and honest and forthright with me, I thought, wow, I finally met someone who practices and doesn't preach. I now have faith in those who say that they represent a faith, a very general statement, obviously. But I finally met people who walk the walk. Okay, that is powerful. One of the premier actors of Hollywood, shaken by a simple act of generosity with a little bit of risk sprinkled in. And she couldn't resist the compelling effect of that in her life. And you know what it did? It overwhelmed 40-some years of negative examples in her life. That's what blew me away. 40-some years of bad examples annihilated by one genuine, authentic, joyfully generous Christian whose life was changed by a need that came in and that she could, wanted to escape, but simply could not escape. Our generosity, and it don't simply mean monetary, the giving of our time is what will catch the attention of the world that we live in and will give us an opportunity to share with them the truth that they so desperately need to hear, but are deaf to, because our life doesn't measure up.
May God help us. Joyful generosity in your life will shatter the binding. John Piper says it this way. It will shatter the binding and blinding power of materialism. It will shatter it. And it will give fresh evidence of your love to a world that is, you know what they're watching for? Authentic Christians whose life are, lives are really affected by what they believe. It has a practical impact in how they use their time, their talents, and their treasure. It actually affects their life. I bring you this challenge this morning. Is your relationship to your resources of time, talent, and treasure, is it affected by the generosity of God in Christ? Is it different than the world around us? And I don't stand before you as one this morning thinking that mine is. Okay, I'm talking to myself. I think the encouragement from the stats is, church, you're doing well. Do it more and more. But the last thought I want to close with this morning is this. That our, our joyful, generous giving is a spontaneous expression of love. Look at verse 9. It is a spontaneous expression of love. Paul says at the end of this very practical discussion, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's setting up Christ as the ultimate illustration of generosity. What is he saying? Compare yourself to Christ. And here's what I believe that'll do. It'll always produce in my life a dissatisfaction with whatever level of generosity I may move towards. And it will always cause me to realize that there's more to do. Not a dissatisfaction that frustrates and manipulates and hurts and wounds, but a a desire to say, you know what? God, show us more and more what you want us to do. Give us a spontaneous expression of love that is a response to the grace that has come to us in Jesus Christ. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, the generosity, remember the same word, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, and if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, this verse will go, whew. They are perhaps the most difficult church in the New Testament era. So bad were the issues that Paul has to write them a letter to straighten them out. And almost every part of the letter is about straightening out problems that are present in the church there. He says to them, you, if anyone knows, you know the grace of God that has redeemed you and changed your life and forgiven you. Though he was rich, he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. And here's what's fascinating. This idea of Christ becoming poor in the original language is what's called an ingressive aorist. It is a, it, it's a, it's a, an, an, an event that takes place, but it is described and understood as a series of events. Leaving heaven, serving us, dying on the cross, raised from the dead, raised back to the throne again in heaven. It talks about the whole issue of his incarnation, the enfleshing of God, as if it was one event. You know the grace of God, the generosity of His Son, that though He was rich, He became poor. A series of events that led Him from living in flesh to becoming a servant, to be nailed to a cross, to an ignoble death, burial, resurrection, to life. Savior of the world. Paul looks at all that and he says, that's His poverty. He did that so you could become rich. Ray Stebbin puts it in this way. Jesus Christ was a man who borrowed everything. So deep was his poverty. 
a cattle shed and a feeding trough for his birth, food to feed 5,000, clothing, a coin to give as an illustration, a donkey to enter Jerusalem, a house for the Last Supper, and a grave for his burial. He became poor so that we might become rich. And on one occasion, he notes, all the disciples went home and he went to the Mount of Olives because the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. So deep was his willingness to impoverish himself so that we could be so blessed that we, through his poverty, might become rich. We have union with Him. We have the assurance of eternal life. Psalm 1611 puts it this way. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. That is what the Son left to come down. And that is how we are enriched in Him. United with Him and joint heirs of all that is His. The message puts this verse this way. You are familiar with the generosity of our Master. Rich as He was, He gave it all away. In one stroke... He became poor, and we became rich. The aim of Christ's poverty, the aim of his self-emptying and self-effacing step from heaven to earth, do you know what it was? It was your everlasting joy that is to be expressed now in the context of generosity. That is exactly the connection that Paul draws between the coming of Christ and the joyful generosity that should characterize the life of every Christian. Here's the promise I can give you this morning. If you choose joy-filled generosity, I cannot promise you that your bank account will increase in value. There are many churches in America, there are many teachers in America who want to tell you you can have a better life now. I'm not here to promise you that. I'm not that good. But I can tell you this. If you embrace generosity, you will be happy. I think that is the clear and abundant hope of this text. Here's what I thought of. I thought, you know what? I have never met anyone who at the end of their life or ever heard of anyone saying at the end of their life, I'm sorry I was so generous. Never. And I'll tell you this too. To the day of my death, I don't expect that I'll ever hear that happen. I don't. That is a stunning thought. Christ died on the cross. He became poor so that you might become rich. And in context, the riches is the riches that come from joyful generosity. Go back to verse 2. That's the connection. That when you know the love of God in Christ, when you know free grace, when you are delivered from the demands of religion to get favor with God, and giving as a duty, it will produce an overwhelming, rich generosity. And when you do, I believe the promise of this text, implied and stated, is you will have what you're looking for. You know why you hang on to money? You know why we're stingy and miserly in terms of giving in America? And by the way, the evangelical church is guilty of being stingy in its giving. I think by the biblical standard. Why do we hang on to it? Let's be honest. If you have more money, you'll be happier. That's why we want the promotion, isn't it? That's why we want our kids to get a good job, because if they have a good job, then they'll be happy. 
That's why we get disgusted with them when they don't do their best in school or college. Because we want them to be happy, and you'll be happier if you have better grades. If you have better grades, you get a better job. If you have a better job, you make more money. And it is a lie. It is a lie. The happiest people, I told you this last week, the happiest people I've ever met live in India. They live in Indonesia. They live in Colombia. And they're, the mountain peaks of joy for them are not purchases. They're gifts that they give away. And the greatest joy that the Savior ever had was when he died on the cross for you. Hebrews 12, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, knowing what it would mean for us. That is why Christians or people who say they are Christians based on grace through faith alone and Christ alone should be distinguished as the most generous people on planet Earth. And if you don't know Christ this morning, I can suspect that you're trying to find happiness through things. You're believing the lie of Satan and your life will end in disappointment until you see that there is a great Savior for you as a great sinner wants to change your life. That's what this season is all about. We don't have the decorations up, but you know what we have? We have the reason. We have the reason. He became poor. We become rich in what? In joy that produces generosity that will change the course of your life. Father, I pray that you will help us.